Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we look at how our political institutions are failing us and consider ideas for fixing them. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University and blogger at MischiefsOfFaction.com. I'm James Wallner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Lee Drutman, a Senior Fellow at New America. Today we're especially pleased to uh, to welcome Dr. Phil Rocco, my colleague here at Marquette University, where Phil is an assistant professor of political science. He's an extraordinarily well-published scholar, the co-author of Obamacare Wars, numerous other books and articles on the American political system, institutions, and public policy. Most recently, he's the co-editor of the book American Political Development and the Trump presidency. Uh, this is co-edited with Zach Callen, and this shouldn't dissuade you from buying it, but I also have a chapter in it about... Uh, it's the best one. Yeah, chapter, chapter number one. Number one about, First chapter. Uh, the Trump presidency and theories of uh, political cycles and realignment. So so that was a turned uh, intro of my colleague into an obnoxious self plug. So, um, oh, no, it's good. Yeah, good it's to be great, here. Thanks for having me. It's great to you. have you, Phil. And so we're, our overarching question today is going to be uh, a question of whether our institutions are failing us at a moment of coronavirus. So we're recording this on March 16th, 2020, and we're we're all at home. We are, uh, the nation is, is shutting down major gatherings, institutions, conferences are, are shutting down, travel is slowing significantly. It's not, I guess, entirely stopped at this moment. We're, we're in a really exceptional moment. So we're going to ask, are our institutions failing us here and how could they, how could they be better? So I, I want to just first put the question to the group about how are our unique American political institutions shaping the response to this COVID-19 outbreak? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, we've got, go ahead, Lee. Well, I, I think we can't, uh, I mean, we can't answer that question really without thinking about the role of the presidency uh, and the particular president that we have, who seems to be totally ill-equipped to handle the role that we expect of the presidency. And it seems like a lot of other institutions are scrambling to fill in the space. And there's there's this interesting kind of distributed response that's going on now with cities and states kind of making their own judgment on an ad hoc basis. Yeah, I mean, I think the like if we want to think about this, a lot depends on how we think about like how we define institutions, right? So I, I study federalism and one of the things I always like to say about federalism is that it's it's a structure obviously constitutionally, but at the same time, it's a structure that's highly mutable and there's a lot of different ways that people conceptualize it. So like within public health, people think about federalism as sort of affecting the three sort of pieces of public health, which is like assessment, surveilling health needs, policy development, which is, you know, decision-making, um, like banning smoking on like commercial flights or something. And then like assurance, which is assuring that services are provided to people who have needs. And the map of federalism, I think, in the head of public health people looks very, very different than it does for people in other sort of domains of policy. And I think it also looks very different depending on whether or not you're in normal time or emergency time. It's almost as if there are two different structures that people have in their heads. And uh, most of the, because most of the time isn't emergency time, that's the kind of structure that's most up in the air. And I think in many ways, people are improvising. Uh, I, ad hoc, I guess, is one way of saying it, but it is, it's improvisational in part because the system is so complicated, it almost has to be, right? Right. And I, I think those are excellent points. And it seems to me that the way in which we think about government shapes a lot about how we think it ought to respond in these particular instances. But it sounds like a very elementary point to make, but I think it is an important one, which is in a participatory democracy, Public health emergencies like the coronavirus outbreak are, or pandemic are especially troublesome because they're participatory democracies. And when you have a situation where you are kind of 
self-quarantining, if you will, or you're within your home and you can't really go out, if you can't interact with your fellow citizens, if your representatives can't interact with one another, if they can't interact with the executive branch, um, if those barriers start to be erected, it becomes very hard for our system to work, even how it's designed to work um, in the most normal times. Well, here we here we are in a in a. a- entirely online podcast recording why can't members just all get together in a giant zoom meeting right the whole nation is going to zoom this is like my third zoom today so for for our friends at home the the four of us are uh looking at each other on zoom while we record this uh through our usual software but i want to jump in on lee's point about the presidency and expand that a little more in a couple of ways one of those one of those ways is to is to set the presidency up you know, vis-a-vis Congress, who actually are the people who have to make some of these some of these decisions. So we've, you know, we also need to consider: is this really, you know, is this going to reveal how much of a mess Congress is further pushing pressure onto the president? The second thing is, when you look historically, I've been I've been thinking a lot about the presidency, about past presidential moments of of crisis, and. One thing that really jumps out at me is that presidents are the ones who are most well positioned to define the political logic of the situation. Um, but that attempt at definition of you know identifying the nature of the crisis and identifying the way the ways it will be addressed, the ways that resources will be marshaled, and the way that trade offs will be you know, will be absorbed, who will lose from the kinds of things that have to be done to address an emergency. And presidents are the people who they're sort of in the position as a kind of sole elected national leader to identify those kinds of trade-offs and explain why they're necessary or why they may be, you know, potentially, uh, why they're worthwhile, why they're potentially compensated. They're in that role. But we're also in a situation in which many years of what we would call in in the study of American political development, we would call institutional or political development, presidents are receiving a lot. There's a lot in this situation that that they can't define, that's not fluid or flexible. So and one of the things we're finding, which we're gonna hopefully get to in a bit, is is polarization. But also it's the shape of institutions. And here's where my work on the presidency is now really intersecting with with Phil's. Uh, work on federalism. We often think of president vis-a-vis Congress um, as Congress is sort of the foil to the president at the national level. But now we're seeing a president sort of vis-a-vis other sub-national level executives. There's a most recently, at least most recently last I was on Twitter, was President Trump tweeting and saying, governors, I think this was directed specifically at New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, you have to do more. And and asking governors and, and local leaders to do more, which had a response I can imagine, you know, as I can imagine we can all kind of predict. But we're now looking at that relationship, which we don't talk about as much, the president um, and his role in a federal system, um, where he's not really in charge of governors, just the way he's not in charge of Congress, but also there is this expectation of leadership. So that's my, that's sort of my initial two cents. I think the federalism angle is very interesting here. I'd like to hear uh, more from Phil. I mean, I typically approach things from a constitutional and from a kind of theoretical perspective first. And there are certain limits on what the the presidency can do, though, as well. Um, we we expect a lot of things from the presidency. We expect a lot of things from the from the federal government. But in situations like this, and I'm thinking there's a great article that Keith Whittington has up at Reason on the police powers and can the government close my bar? And it turns out the federal government can't, but but your state or lo- you know local government may be able to. And I think you're right, Julia. It's a it's a great it's a great moment to kind of reevaluate how we think about the states in relation to the federal government and how that all plays out because it's not just one that's supposed to solve all the problems on its own it's a combination of 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 the states and the federal government and working together sometimes not working well together but overall that process yields ideally it should be good outcomes and it it, right now it doesn't look like that's the case but but maybe uh, maybe phil can tell me why it it will i i don't think i'm going to be that optimistic on it and in part i think one of the reasons why is that federalism has changed so much in the last 50 years or so. And I'm not saying 50 years ago, this would have been easier necessarily, but I think it's worth sort of marking out what what are some of the things that have changed. And I think one thing that 
many federalism scholars would point to is the disappearance of regularized interaction and interrelation between the federal and state governments. So between about 1960 and 1996, we had this institution called the Advisory Commission on Intergovernmental Relations. And one of the ideas of this institution was to try to really explicitly conceptualize the relationship between the federal and state governments as being somewhat fluid and something that needed to be mapped out, rehearsed, regularly sort of instantiated through co-drafting of legislation, for example, between governors and members of Congress, and sort of mapping out the federal system for for lay people uh, for, or even for generalist sort of politicians. And with the disappearance of the ACIR, and I think also with, the, with really the rise of an increasing sort of level of austerity at, at the state level, I think a lot of those points of contact between federal and state uh, officials have become um, enervated. And I think it, it actually puts more, um, oddly enough, it puts a lot more responsibility on the president to be a leader who leads through almost what exactly what Julia was saying, which is through rhetoric, through exhortation, through setting the scene or helping people make sense of the scene, because in the absence of all of these other mechanisms of interaction and collaboration, that's what we have to rely on. And I think that's sort of why Trump is maybe uniquely unsuited to this moment, because that's exactly where he, of all of the places where his governance approach, if one can call it that, fails. It fails most heavily on that sort of exhortation piece. Well, there's another question that I've been thinking a lot about uh, as the, the states and, and cities have started to act more and more on their own with a lack of leadership at the top, uh, which is this question of whether we make better decisions in, in a distributed way. This is sort of the, the wisdom of crowds argument or whether we make worse decisions in a distributed way. This is the mania of crowds argument. And it seems like we've, as far as, and I'm not a, an epidemiologist, but it seems like we've moved remarkably quickly to, we're not sure to stay the F home because, you know, that's the only way we're going to stop this, which may be that the distributed decision-making process turns out to have been the right process. But the other complicating factor is the extent to which there has been a partisan gap in the seriousness in which citizens and to some extent elected officials have taken the warnings about coronavirus. And so, I mean, obviously one of the things that, that I always harp on is the danger of hyper-partisanship to our politics and, and the way it creates dysfunctional political institutions, but to the extent that it creates a differential response among the blue states versus red states, that has real life and death consequences. So uh, put, I put that on the table for discussion as well. Yeah, I think that there's, there are a lot of questions about what, what looks to me, I shouldn't phrase it, there are a lot of questions about, this is what the data says to me, um, is that Republicans and Democrats have been somewhat living in different political universes in general, but that that's has been especially true with regard to coronavirus. And uh, Michael Tesler has a piece up in the Washington Post today in the monkey cage, uh, describing all of the, you know, describing the differences between blue and red state responses um, using Googling data, people's Google searches um, about the virus. So it does seem like that's happening. And the, I would bring this back to the presidency to some degree also, this has been a persistent feature of Trump's presidency, and more importantly, maybe, or at least kind of more broadly, this has been a feature of the last three presidencies, each each more than the next, is that the president's ability to define things has deepened for his fellow partisans and been almost completely non-existent for those who are not part of the president's party. So at least since the kind of middle of the Bush presidency, Democrats really rejected frames that George W. Bush put on things um, that was, you know, we saw intense polarization around the Obama presidency. And then we're seeing that come home with Trump. And so we've kind of danced around this question of Trump being uniquely unsuited to the moment. But I think this problem is twofold. I think that there are some questions about keep saying there are questions. There are serious doubts, yeah. even well, among- Well, this is a show about questions, Julia. So, right, I know, so, I know, so, exactly. So lean in, question. lean in. Yeah, you guys have, have infected my brain. So, um, your questions. <laughs> so- <laughs> Why? Uh, well, yeah. I, well, if, if, if that's what's infecting your brain, 
metaphorically maybe okay so um well, can i i mean yeah, can i just jump, i mean what is it exactly that the president can i mean i think there is a general sense right now that the response has been lagging yeah has been slow and has been subpar. Now, depending on your political views, that could be a very intense response or a mild response. But I think that's a general, I agree with that. But what is it exactly that the, I think it helps to think through and be specific and articulate what it is that the president specifically could be doing and then what it is that the federal government could be doing. So the president, this gets into the separation of powers issue, the president with Congress. And I know there's a bill that's working its way through Congress as we speak, but what what are we talking about in terms of the the coronavirus? Is are we, are we talking about mitigating the effects of of any kind of, of of result of any kind of consequences, or are we talking about you know more test kits? What what is it that we want these institutions to be doing that aren't that they aren't currently doing? Phil, you want to jump in on that? I mean, uh, I think that one one very basic thing. Beyond, I mean, there's obviously talking about legislation and using the president's authority and all of that, all important. But I think this is where it sort of brings back to, to Julia's point, which is there's a very basic thing, which is the there is a role that the president can play in risk communication, which is actually prior to all of the other administrative and legislative roles that the president plays in this moment. Because at the end of the day, from a public health perspective, one thing that's very important is that people get a very clear crisp signal about what they should do, roughly speaking, within a set of parameters. And I think it's interesting to me, like the NBA was much better at that and uh, other social inst societal institutions, sports, the media to some extent, um, at getting sort of on the same public health page in messaging than uh, the White House was seemingly, or at the very least, the White House response seemed to lag. Right. Separate and apart from any kind of legal authority, it's basically just the ability to communicate the seriousness of the problem that we face and the need for concerted action to to address it at, the, at a minimum. Right. I mean, it seems like that. And I think that has been generally lacking. I mean, it seems to be very muddled even till to now. I mean, the federal government still it's unclear whether we're teleworking in the, with all of the federal workers. It's there's lots of stuff happening right now that I think could be a little bit clearer. Well, I mean, and here there's an interesting comparative question to ask, uh, which is that France and Italy and Germany and Spain are all dealing with this in the same way, uh, or, or are all dealing with with, or I should say, in different ways of the same with the same magnitude of a problem. And I think time will tell the extent to which uh, different countries' strategies did a better job of slowing the curve. I mean, we, we certainly have the advantage of following after Italy and, and learning from some of their mistakes, but I'm not sure. I mean, it seems like France has acted more swiftly than we have. Uh, I don't know if that's a function of Macron's leadership or just, or what. Uh, I mean, America, there's also the We're cultural comparison. Yeah, which is that France, yeah, France is, is a more centralized country. The U.S. and uh, of the countries, I mean, Germany is a more federalized country. Switzerland's a more federalized country. Uh, so we will have some interesting comparative questions to ask there. And then there's just the unique cultural aspect of America, which is that we tend to be more individualistic and less willing to defer to authority and, and there's sort of a rebel spirit in America that is somewhat unique that nobody's going to tell me whether or not I can lick the floors, damn it. Well, I mean, in the German in the German case, it's very interesting because there have been a lot of federalism has played a pretty important role in, at least in the perception of Germans, the delayed and inadequate response. And so there have been a lot of complaints recently that the, the infect, uh, Protection Against Infection Act, I don't know what that is in German, probably a lot longer. It's a compound um, word. It, it's a probably a very long compound word, but the uh, like that law segments authority between state and federal uh, levels in terms of like declarations of things like quarantines. And there's actually in Germany been a lot of complaints sort of around that. So I, I think that's sort of one case where you do see this sort of comparison, at least in terms of institutional consistency on things like quarantine rules. But I think, yeah, in, in the United States, too, a lot of the protective authority of the state police powers and so forth does live at the state and local level. So that's, I mean, there are sort of harder edges to that as well. But Phil, could you not, I mean, could the president 
not issue very clear rhetorical uh, guidance and exercise leadership in that way and then call on yes. the states to use that power? I mean, I think, is that yeah. one of the critiques, I think, of, of, the, of the performance thus far of President Trump and yeah, this and crisis? I, yeah, and I think that that's where the, again, when, when like Public Health 101, they'll often say like, here's what the federal government does on public health. It's sort of doing the research, the sort of sur uh, health surveillance, maybe setting some guidelines, and then there's some like a resource piece. But the authority and the sort of policy competencies fundamentally live at the state and local level. And if you look at, I I've been looking at like budgets of state and local health departments over the last 10 years. And it's, it's like a pretty dismal picture as, as you know, as you might um, imagine. Wow. And so it does really where it, it, it shows you where the, these relationships wear thin and where it is important that uh, a president set pretty clear rhetorical guidelines and be able to use the sort of convening power, I guess the presidents have. Should we assess Congress's performance? I do want to assess Congress's performance, but I want to, I want to hit a couple points first and then we can, bring bring it over to congress um so first of all i just want to clarify in terms as we're talking about federalism is there is there much the federal government could be doing to compel states and localities to act in this context if it, if they were so inclined to compel states to act i mean there is, there is the federal government can issue quarantines uh but it's the the authority is far more limited in terms of what it can do it's pretty circumscribed by the Commerce Clause. and But I, I think in terms of what the federal government can compel, or at least what the executive branch can compel state and local governments to do, is I think under the Public Health Service Act, I mean, somewhat thinner. And I, I think it does sort of rely on cooperation rather than sort of mandate politics. Um, and, and, you know, indeed, there was this moment where there was like a rise of sort of federal mandate legislation. But I think that that sort of, at least in the public health sphere, has fallen off. There was big criticism of this. And so I think that that is where you see the power of the federal government more circumscribed. All right, so and I know this has been circumscribed a bit since the Supreme Court case. Sorry to interrupt, Julia, with the Affordable Care Act. But can they not use the power of the purse as well to kind of compel or at least to entice um, entice states to come go along with what they're doing? Oh, I mean, I was thinking about under current law. So of course they can pass legislation to stimulate state action that that's sort of the rigor. But, um, but I do, I think it's just like worth mentioning, like who's able to act swiftly and quickly with the authority that currently exists. That's the, I think that was what I was trying to get at. Okay, great. So with, with that kind of thinking about the federal state relationship, let's, let's move on as Lee suggested to Congress. Um, you know, let's, let's think about the politics of what Congress is dealing with so far. Lee, you want to kick us off? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing uh, to to note is that the House has acted incredibly quickly, and you know, it seems like there's been some negotiations between the House and the White House, although uh, Trump and Pelosi are not talking to each other, so Mnuchin is a, a the stand-in. And you know, I think this is a, a space in which Congress can certainly fill the, the the leadership void. And I think Pelosi and the Democrats have acted very quickly. Uh, I'll turn it over to James for, his, for the assessment of what's going on in the Senate. And of course, by the time we air this episode, it may have changed. Yeah, no, I think this, and I brought up this theme a lot in, on this show, but the idea of, of Congress, if you look at Congress as a factory that produces widgets, outcomes, then I think your view of Congress in this in this crisis changes considerably and your expectations change considerably. If you think of Congress as a place where our representatives go to participate in an activity on our behalf, which may or may not produce outcomes, then it's a slightly different. I still think it's a very bad um, uh, kind of evaluation of, of Congress's performance thus far, but it is for different reasons. And I think one of the concerns that I have in this current environment is that the demand for speed can be very real and very important, but it also there are other reasons why members may want to slow things down. For instance, what happens if if they if the leadership wants to put a FISA extension uh, um, uh, for the kind of the Patriot Act uh, surveillance laws into a into a bill to deal with the coronavirus because they really need to and they can't get an agreement otherwise and they feel like their members aren't going to stick around to vote on it, right? What, ha what if they put that into a uh, into a coronavirus bill and then kind of use this idea of we got to do this right away? 
to force members to not object, to not run, use their rights to try to offer amendments or to take it out. I think that's very problematic. And I think that's very problematic. And we lose sight of that kind of the process and we lose sight of the deliberation when we only focus on the outcomes. I'm not saying that's what you were doing, Lee, but it's we have this tendency to say, well, here's the widget and why can't Congress just make well, the widget? Well, this is a, this Congress's a, job this is a fundamental to make widgets. critique of, of deliberate legislatures in moments of crisis that we don't have time to deliberate. Now, one approach to that might be to say, well, we'll pass something, it'll be provisional, it'll sunset in X number of days, and then we'll spend the time debating whether or not we want to extend it. So that's one reasonable approach to take to things. I mean, another problem is that there's a lot of stuff that Congress hasn't been able to deal with. So when you have a moving train of legislation, everybody wants to, to jump on it, and it becomes the one vehicle leaving the station. Uh, and whereas if we if Congress had been functioning, maybe we would have resolved some of these other issues in a, in a more deliberative fashion. And then the bill to deal with this disaster response could be somewhat limited to the disaster response. Uh, but I mean, this is this is why a lot of in the 1930s, a lot of people were saying that democracy is outmoded. Democracy is too slow. Uh, democracy can't deal with crisis, and what we need is strong centralized power. And the wave of the future is is Mussolini or it's Hitler. I mean, that was a, a real set of uh, a, a real intellectual strain in the 1930s. And there's a great book, and sorry to interrupt on this, but Ira yeah, Katz Nelson. It's called that. Fear right. Itself. It's right. an absolutely fabulous book. I would encourage yeah. all of our listeners to, to to check it out on this on the point that Lee's making. So, how should we think about that? I mean, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna bust in and be the the presidency skunk in the Congress Garden Party here, um, <laughs> and as usual, and point out like this is the moment if we're gonna keep going back to these crisis moments. And I've thought a lot about the Great Depression today, including a lot about this point Lee just made over the last couple of days about um, this sort of you know can democracy address the crisis? I've thought a lot about the Civil War which is a moment where the presidency came into focus in a way that was really out of step with the, with the Whig tradition in which Abraham Lincoln had come up politically. And then you get this, you know, somewhat more contextualized active presidency in the 1930s with FDR, whose ideas came very much out of the, the capital P progressive moment, but then they sort of found their, their home in FDR's New Deal presidency in the 30s. And what comes out of that is that, you know, you have this incredibly productive Congress that meets in 1933, but they are they are doing things in part under the the political definition of the president. Where the, in, in part, I was tweeting about this last night because I was really enjoying the sound of my own voice on Twitter during the Democratic debate, and um, it was a little excessive, but I did it. But I noted that essentially Sanders and Biden were arguing about structure versus immediacy, and I think you would have a similar argument if there was a if there was a more vibrant Republican primary right now. I think you probably hear similar kinds of arguments among elite Republicans between kind of this show this reveals our structural weakness versus we need to deal with this right now. This is an immediate pressing crisis, and our focus should be on that. And so this speaks to Lee's question about you know do you produce um, do you produce an immediate action bill. Um, and then debate some of the, the larger details of what do you, you know, what do you do? And this is where it's useful, once again, to have a president who can't tell Congress what to do, who can't tell governors what to do in a binding way, but who sort of identifies, here's how we're going to balance the structural features versus the immediate features and stop the, you know, stop the, the crisis. Here's how we're going to balance order and security versus liberty and whatever that might look like in the moment. And again, why we're making certain kinds of, of trade-offs. And the, I think what we're learning is that on the one hand, there are tremendous dangers in having this be concentrated in a single president because that person may not be suited for the moment for a variety of reasons. But we're also learning that that role is really critical. So it, we're really, what we're doing is not exposing the dangers of a presidency-centered system exclusively. We're, we're exposing the, the tension and the, the necessity of that at the same time. Well, I mean, another thing that I was going to add to that, and, and I've long been a proponent of having crisis simulations be a part of the presidential nominating and electing process. I wrote a, a Washington Post op-ed in 2015 saying we should have crisis simulations instead of debates because uh, I, one of the most important things that a president can do is lead the nation in a time of crisis. 
uh, Congress should be doing the lawmaking. So all this debating over Medicare for all, Medicare for some, public option, that's really the role of Congress. The role of, of a presidency is to handle a crisis. And you know, I, I think if we had done crisis simulations, we might have seen how limited Trump's ability to handle a crisis. I, I mean, many of us, I think, could have intuited it from his inability to string together coherent sentences on a lot of topics. Uh, but still, I think it, that would have brought it into sharper relief for the American people that what we need a president most of all is to be a leader in a crisis. And you know, you can think a lot about what would have happened if we hadn't had a president like FDR in the 1930s that we, we might not have been a democracy for a while here in the United States. Yeah, that's a good point. Phil, you want to jump in on this? And then I want to wind yeah. up on this topic. Go ahead. I mean, but I think to, to push back a, li a push. little bit, I mean, there's it's obviously I think we're the uh, the presidency is an institution that that can play that role in in an important way of like sort of setting the tone for crisis, leading in a crisis and, and exercising, say, I don't know, the powers under the Stafford Act uh, to actually do emergency management. But there's also something that like I feel like the whenever I teach intro to American politics, I'm always realizing that there are like eight weeks that I'm missing. And the question is every semester, it's a different eight weeks. Um, but the increasingly, I think the weeks that I'm missing, especially in moments like this, is the relationship between civil society and the state, which I, I think it the pressure or the demand on the president to lead is perhaps not as great or perhaps not as uh, as intense if there's a really robust um, set of connections between civil society and the state. And I think especially with public health where the action that needs to happen is so distributed and the the uh, path of the, the virus is actually so complex, uncertain, difficult to predict in advance that the standard anticipatory modes of governance actually might be limited in certain ways. And so I just think that like in talking about institutions, it's worth not missing this other thing that sits sort of outside of the state and interacts and, and, and interpenetrates it. And I think that this is where you're, the story you're, you're talking about, Lee, of, of the, the toxicity of partisanship really becomes important because what happens when you're a business or you are a sort of social institution and getting involved in these very mission critical uh, mo moments of governance becomes politically toxic for you. And I've run into this talking to people about the census, you know, in, in prior decennial census uh, counts, businesses have become very involved in like telling people about it, right? Here's the census, it's on your receipt. Uh, we're reminding you about it. And now increasingly the interviewees that I've uh, been talking to in this current project have said, actually that's, we can't do that. That's now seen as quote unquote political. So that's where I, I think that the, the partisanship story really does matter in part because it rends apart the civil society institutions that make the jobs of governance within the state. So, so what you're saying is that there are a lot of civil society institutions that are afraid or may, may have been afraid to say this is a real threat because that somehow is a threat to Trump who's saying, don't worry, stock market go up, although the stock market just went down 11 percent today. Uh, so, right. So, so I was low. just so impressed. I was so happy about the NBA, I guess. You know, that's like I was like, OK, this is this. Is, I'm very happy that the NBA exists. The NBA, the NCAA. So so th then the argument is that it, it maybe it would be better if we had a president who leads. But given that we can't be sure of that, maybe it's better to have distributed institutions that have a have a kind of fail safe redundancy. Or even in that context, kind of bridging both points and, and bringing this idea of the rhetorical presidency and the leadership that the presidency exercises um, into this. How do you have a president to, to kind of build up civil society, to call on civil society, to alert them to the problems and the dangers that this virus poses, and then to, to try to pledge support and, and cooperation instead of looking to blame um, uh, you know, various uh, people or countries or other things in society. I mean, it seems like now is a time where you should be trying to build up rather than kind of tear down in, in, in a crisis like this. I don't, it, that's just my own kind of um, intuition. I don't know if that's like a public health thing or not, but it just seems like in public health crises, you want to you build up, not tear down. 
I mean, ironically, I'm not sure that we have a good model for doing this. Of course, this is this thing that I'm talking about is exactly what Herbert Hoover attempted during his presidency, the idea of the associational yeah. state. And it arguably in the face of crisis failed miserably. So, I mean, maybe there's maybe there's really good evidence against what I'm saying, too. Uh, but I think it's also Depression. worth thinking about, like, the, that model of the associational state was one in which it was mostly associational, very little state. Uh, so, like, maybe that's not the way of no, thinking. Well, but that's, wanna, would, oh, Julia, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to make a quick addendum to that, which is that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about these analogies. And I think that this might actually be where the analogy between the Great Depression and the immediate coronavirus situation, not the economic effects, but the pandemic itself breaks down a little bit and where civil society has a role to play in in public health the way it doesn't necessarily in like restructuring the economy, precisely because, you know, the, the economic problems have a lot to do with with coordination, right? And public health problems have to do with coordination as well. But you also have the kind of role that civil society plays in matching what, you know, individual community needs in tailored kinds of messages and being maybe in this speaks to Lee's point about American political culture too, right? Being linked up to people's the details of people's lives in the way that we don't feel comfortable with the state doing. So I think that the in this in a public health crisis the way that civil society steps in maybe makes like kind of substantive sense. So I go ahead we... and then I want to move on to our next uh, wrap up. Oh, I, I just wanted to, to, to break, to break down civil society a little more. Like what are we okay. talking about? Are we talking about churches? Are we talking about associations? Are we talking about local PTAs? Are we talking about business associations? All of those. The way I think of civil society is everything in the public sphere outside of formal government institutions. I'm sure there's a fancier definition somewhere, but you have your household, your private sphere, where you live and inhabit and um, interact with your family members. And then you have the public sphere, where you interact with your peers, uh, fellow citizens. And that can be a church. It can be, a, you know, it can be a sporting event. It can be uh, a civic organization like the Lions Club. It can be a whole host of things. And then you have kind of formal governing political institutions. Uh, but those civil society plus the political institutions combine and form, in my mind, at least the right. public sphere. So, so, and I contrast that with the private so, sphere. So, I mean, there's, but at the same time, like there, like some civil society institutions, and I mean, I've been reading about some churches that are actually being actively harmful to getting people to, right. to stay home. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, That's that, right. that goes back to the point of partisanship and Phil's point about yes. associations worried about the partisan implications of the messages that they're sending. Uh, and, and also a broader point that, that uh, most associations are, are no longer orthogonal to partisan politics. They're, they're part of partisan politics, which gets back to the hyper-partisan point. So, I mean, we've, we've have, we have a lot of variables here. There's the question of, of hyper-partisanship, centralization, centralization versus decentralization, efficiency versus deliberation. What else am I leaving out? Federalism is a version of decentralization. Well, I mean, and uh, I mean, and, and, and I know that Julia wants to move on to the next topic, but uh, freedom and rule, right? I mean, one of the things about civil society, one one of the things about relying on um, other organizations and other layers of, of 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 life to deal with things and to work on things is that they get to decide how they're going to do it, and that can be particularly troubling in a public health crisis where someone's decision can be very, very impactful on everyone else. Right. But that that really highlights the tension between freedom and rule. And in America, as I always say, we don't have rulers. The majority doesn't rule. The minority doesn't rule. The experts don't rule. No one rules in America. And that it can be great and it can be very bad in, at times. And I, and I think it's important to to acknowledge those bad times and, and to remember the good ones and try to say, OK, what in. You know, go through an exercise of this is why we have this type of system. This is why we have this type of government. But when we no longer think about it in those terms, it becomes very hard to justify the bad, you know, the bad things like, oh, well, that civil society organization over there is doing X and that's really bad for me. So we shouldn't let them do it. So, you know, we don't like, you know, let's just go ahead and try to rule them and make them stop it. So I want to uh, move on here and I, I want to note a couple things. One is that there's a whole other topic, and maybe we will get to this in another episode, about um, the cancellation and postponement of party primaries. But I think that's going to take us into a totally different thematic direction. So we're going to table that for now. But just so our listeners know, we're, we are thinking about that. 
But where I want to end on is a question that's not totally about institutions, but really about this linkage that we've been talking about between institutions, partisan politics, and the rest of society, which is whether there's any chance that this will turn into a kind of national moment, like 9-11 or something like that, where there's some semblance of initial unity or purpose or where it really changes how we think and talk about a set of issues. Any thoughts about that? Well, I'd like to be optimistic, but I feel like based on everything I've seen... Do it, Lee. Come on, be optimistic. Yeah, I I, I know. I'm really trying here. All right. I'm optimistic, damn it. Yes. All right. I think... You disappoint me. I I think once we see how how this affects everybody and it doesn't spare uh, any parts of the country, I think we'll understand how much of a shared fate we have and maybe that will lead us towards uh improving our political institutions and dissolving some of the zero-sum partisanship but you know it, we we have to think carefully about how to do that and how to take advantage of that uh, of what will probably be a brief moment of goodwill when this finally settles bill you want to jump in i i actually want to come back to your question so you said national moments moment of Unity is that the? Yeah. I'm I'm curious about what what we're what we're looking for, what the dependent variable is. I guess <laughs> I'm like trying to figure that because I feel like a lot hinges yeah. on that, right? Like, what what are the boundaries of that? Yeah. So this this is a great question, and I think a lot about unity and division. And I uh, one thing that that James and I agree on in the midst of our many many disagreements is that conflict is good. So normally I'm kind of like anti unity. I agree. I, I conflict is good. I well, I'm actually. Uh, Kind some of, conflict is good. I'm actually kind of suspicious of some of these moments, and I'm particularly suspicious of the ways in which the 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 ways in which national unity at moments like 9/11 actually quickly, you know, transferred into very deep partisanship and very deep divisions, and some of right. the nationalism that wasn't and how they're used for to, Middle Eastern Americans yeah, like myself, and how they can be used to to actually push people outside of that yeah, kind of the bounds of acceptable political yes. conflict and to be delegitimized. Well, I think exactly. that's, and I think that's, and we saw that after 9/11. Certainly, um, we've seen it in all kinds of crises. It's it's one of the oldest tricks in the book, if you will, and and I think it's something that we, and that gets back to my original comments on Congress. It, it's just it's something that we need to be extra vigilant about. It doesn't mean that there's not need for speed. It doesn't mean that there's not need to all come together. But we also have to acknowledge that anyone who stands in the way for any reason isn't an enemy of the state and wants to destroy humanity. Well, here's where I think there are some important differences between 9-11 and the coronavirus. And it has to do with the policy response that after 9-11, the policy response was enhanced surveillance and war, uh, which are issues that you know quickly came to divide America, in part because of, of how they were handled, uh, but also because they're, I think, inherently divisive issues. I think the policy response that we're already seeing, I, I think, in response to the coronavirus is uh, increased spending on, on public welfare and uh, support for unemployment insurance, support for sick leave. These are the kinds of policies that I think are, are actually quite broadly popular and are more potentially unifying. I mean, I think I think to me the question is, yeah, in what sense, what are we looking for people to be unified in doing? So like one very basic like layer one for me is like, is there unity on what one must do for other people and what exactly one must do to protect one's own health? And I Actually, to me, the jury is still out, and and I the question for me is how much worse it has to get before there is unity around that. At least in the initial public opinion, like the Quinnipiac polling on you know attitudes about how serious to take uh, Corona, that you know there's still a lot of division, yeah. obviously, and and we've seen things like the churches that Lee is talking about, and and so I think the one question is like. Do the actions that the state takes in terms of shutting things down, you know, taking actions to remediate the crisis, does that lead to more or less unity? And does it create a space? Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I think one of the things I've been seeing a a bit uh, is that a number of Republican senators have have come out, you know, in the last day or so 
and made some pretty strong statements about the urgency of yeah. people hunkering down. And Mitt Romney, we're recording on the day when Mitt Romney uh, endorsed universal basic income as a as a way to just take a moment, let that sink in <laughs> uh, to help mitigate. So, you know, like, I mean, I, I agree. I think there hasn't been a ton of unity, but I think, you know, when this gets worse, if it gets worse, uh, I think there, there will be a brief moment of, of sort of can, I don't know, maybe unity is not the right word. Uh, maybe it's sort of a temporary goodwill and sense of us all being in this together. And then it's a question of, what that gets directed towards. Uh, and it may, you know, we may have a, a unique moment in which, uh, you know, Biden wins the, the November election and has a, a long honeymoon period uh, as America hopes to move on from this long national nightmare of, of lots of people dying and being afraid. And you know, then it's a question of, of how you take advantage of that to kind of enact lasting reforms. And, you know, I mean, politics will always be about conflict because the things that are not points of disagreement are not political issues. So. I really like Phil's uh, question to you, Julia, unity as to what, but I think it, this is important. I mean, it can be unity to outcomes, unity to uh, solutions to problems, which I think is where our mindset usually is. It can also be unity in terms of, uh, you know, outlook and how we see and uh, perceive and understand the world. And, 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 and to be honest, it can be unity and diversity. I mean, that's what made America really exceptional from the very beginning is this idea of unity and diversity going hand in hand. And without them, they don't work. And I think right now, by forcing or not forcing, but by having more and more Americans staying home, staying in their local communities, not traveling, maybe they begin to see the world a little bit uh, more locally. And they begin to see the world. And it's harder when you see the world in that way to kind of write off someone whom you disagree with as being some partisan, like insane person who is going to ruin the universe, right? You have to deal with that individual person because you live next door to them or down the hall from so, them. Or... Say that most people are, are geographically self-sorted by partisanship. So it might actually worsen yeah, but it. I... But and, and I spend most of my but, day online. I mean, frankly, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but getting back to other. Yeah, I mean, I think the parties, though, when you bring in issues like this, I mean, the parties are are not very clear right. on. They they appear to be supporting the same kind of issues. It's not really clear what the Democratic response is or the Republican response is. But I think what you do is you have to end up acknowledging people's individuality, which means their diversity. And then through that process, through that process, and by saying, okay, this, the way we get out of this is by all coming together, by trying to build each other up and by not, you know, not touching our face and, and doing stupid things and trying to stay at home and, and that sort of stuff. I think that's where you get, that can be a different kind of unity. And I think it can be a very important kind of unity that comes out of something like this. Or you could have unity as to this is the next big healthcare plan we need, which I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, but I could be wrong. I, I do. Right, I do. Phil, do you want to jump in here and then I'm going to bring us home? No, I mean, I think, I think it could, I think it could be around uh, making demands for something or like, it sort of depends, I think on how the, uh, how the consequences of this crisis are distributed. And I think if they're widely distributed enough, you could see support for more universalism emerge from that. I don't think that that's outside of the bounds of possibility, but we'll have to see how the, the uh, consequences are distributed. You're hearing our live audience uh, yeah. right now. Yeah, this is great. Um, so we, so far we've had appearances from my cat and Lee's daughter and Phil's cat. So um, I want to I, I, I want to suggest something different and, and kind of close this up uh, just because we're at like an hour at this point. But I think that a lot of times I'm going to beg my own question. And I think that a lot of times what looks like unity in these moments of transition is really just shifting coalitions and and shifting terms of debate. And I think that that there are two ways in which this might change our politics and have an impact on the on the way that that political debates take place. One goes back to something Lee said, which is that a lot of these, a lot of kind of public provision and public safety net, social safety net programs are quite popular. But what we know, what we've known for 50 years is that the American electorate tends to be, what is it, operationally liberal and symbolically conservative. So people think they're conservative, but they support more social safety net and more liberal public policy. And so I see that in 
Uh, right, they won't let government. So I see that as potentially being a situation that simultaneously makes you know makes policy change, but also deepens the wedge between how people think politically about you know about what should happen, about what kinds of ideas they want to see in the public sphere, what kinds of ideas they demand to see rhetorically produced, and on the other hand, the kinds of policies that are that are being made and that are you know and that they're demanding. So I actually see that as Potentially, I don't want to frame that as completely negative, but it just is a source of tension and contradiction that I think will deepen as a result. The second thing um, that I want to that I want to jump in with, as far as how I think this will change our politics, is I think that will deepen the the divide that's emergent within each party over uh, change and and status quo, right? Change and maintaining a sense of normal. This is, in a lot of ways, I think, the deepest divide between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And that, I think, yeah. the idea of going back to normal is going to be really comforting to some people. And the idea of this illustrates structural problems that need to be changed is also going to be really resonant. And I think that that division exists within the Republican Party as well. So I would expect to see a lot of the public debate and the political debate about our response to the coronavirus pandemic to really be rooted in those different and very difficult to reconcile perspectives. And so that's how I see this having an impact on the, the way we talk and think about politics going forward. Yeah, I, I agree. Those are incredibly astute and insightful observations. Uh, one potentially concerning question that I have about a potential realignment where both parties converge on a, a similar shared set of economic priorities is then what differentiates the parties and then what differentiates the, differentiates the parties becomes more and more about culture and identity and yeah. that becomes even more polarizing. I think that's really a that's an excellent point also. Lee, and that's yeah so that's a not so great um potential implication because i do think yeah i think there's there's a lot of potential for that to to make politics more zero-sum to use your term and more challenging um anyone want the last word before we move on okay no it's a distributed problem nobody's taking leadership <laughs> okay i tried um i tried and failed like so many before me all right. I'll, I'm the Herbert Hoover of this podcast. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us. Wow. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.